Today's story is about the creation of a children's book series by Cache and Spencer Ford. I think this project is really meaningful because of the bonds of trust that can be built between children and adults who read together. I hope you check out their work at thelittleknownheroes.com. This is The Light You Have Podcast, Story 7, Nightlight. My name is Cache. I'm originally from the Midwest, but moved out to Utah to go to school. I have a degree in broadcast journalism, and I love musical theater, singing and dancing and acting. And then I love just, you know, other things, reading, rock climbing. So um, I like to think we're fun people. I think we always describe ourselves as project people because we always have something going on (laughs) outside of of our jobs. Um, But for work, I am an event and wedding planner. So... We've got lots going on, lots of things that we're juggling right now. <laughs> and I'm Spencer. I am her husband. I have a background, uh, studied psychology and marriage and family therapy when I was going to school, and now I work as a programmer. So life takes a lot of turns, and we make music together. We have a band that's been really exciting. So like she said, we're always working on something. And I don't know, this, this project that we're going to talk about is probably the most uh, pressing and exciting thing we have for the near future, it's been really fun. Our big project that we are working on is a book series called The Little Known Heroes. It is a children's book series that the intent is for parents to read these books with their children, which usually, right, you picture parents and their kids reading books and it's like small, really fun, cutesy picture books at bedtime. And what our mission is with these books is to create children's books that take difficult topics and simplify them and allow parents to build a stronger connection with their children and open some of those lines of communication. The whole idea of the project, to kind of take you back to the start, actually started when Spencer and I were recently married. I was telling him a little bit about um, one of my favorite activists from the civil rights era, right, 1960s in the United States. Her name was Claudette Colvin, and she was a young teenage 14-year-old who essentially, I always say, was Rosa Parks before Rosa Parks. It was not organized. She was sitting on the bus one day, and when she was told to move, she thought, no, I paid for my seat. I'm not going to move, 100% of her own accord. And it was interesting because Spencer hadn't heard of her. And for me, I didn't learn about her in school when we were you know, talking about the civil rights movement. She never came up. But my grandmother, who actually was a member of the NAACP, who is also from the Deep South is where she grew up and then moved up to the Midwest in her youth, told me about her. And I just remember being so amazed at this woman who at 14 years old did this amazing thing that, you know, set the trajectory for so much of that movement and did actually inspire Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks was actually, I think, one of her um, like NAACP mentors when she was in the youth program for them. Um, so literally what she did directly inspired Rosa Parks, you know, inspired Martin Luther King, inspired so many activists of that day. Anyway, she was just an amazing story. And to me as a kid growing up, she was a hero. My maiden name is Colvin. So I also think, you know, the little kid in me was like, we have the same last name. She's so cool. Um, but as I've gotten older and learned a lot more about her story, I mean, my interest in her just has grown and she really did an amazing thing. And for me, it resonates so much because I 
feel that I am often looked at when I do speak up in my own ways for advocacy, um, when I advocate for equity, particularly for people of color and, and people in the black community, especially, that I am often met with the criticisms or it is at least implied that I am young, so I must not know what I'm talking about. Um, so to see for me a young black woman who was able to inspire such a large movement in our country tells me that I don't need to be quiet. I can take up space where it is needed at all of the tables that may not want me there. Um, I can go and I can contribute what I feel is appropriate and what I feel is necessary to stand up for what is right. And that though there will be people who will jeer, there will be people who will not want to listen to me. There are also people who will be inspired by what I have to do. And that as difficult as it may be to face the ridicule and the criticism, that it is worth it. She, for me, she for me is what allows me to persevere when I am attacked and when I am shut down, when I know what is right, when I can stand up for what is right. I, I see her journey reflected in my own and knowing that she was able to continue to move forward and persevere gives me permission um, and strength in order to do that in my own life. And so I just had this this dream and this vision that I wanted to write a book about her because more people needed to know about her. Um, and so she's still idea, alive, by the way. She is. Yes, she is still <laughs> alive. Um, but that kind of just, that started it. I had a hero that I'd learned about in my own life that I thought was significant enough and had done an important enough work that she needed to be a household name and that people needed to know about her. And so we started with this idea to write a book about Claudette. And as we started working on that, we just thought we can't just stop here. We need to do more. Yeah, there's all kinds of people that we would love to be our kids' heroes. So like in our about section on our website, we say our, our second mission with the books is to show children real heroes, people who actually lived, did amazing things. We don't have to make a fictional story. They don't have to be a superhero. They can just be a person who did something super. So showing these people from different backgrounds too is important because heroes come in all shapes and sizes. So we want to show like people that you, I don't know, maybe don't associate in the mainstream of America. So in our first three, we've got Claudette Colvin, who was a young black girl, and then Frank Emmy, who was a Japanese American, and then Dummy Hoy, who was a deaf American. So it's very trying to make that diversity of like heroism can come from anywhere. It can look like anything and anyone can be a hero because of that. Yeah. So that's really the, so how the book started and we are, you know, our hope is that if these, this first series or volume one, if you will, does well, we would love to continue to do them. Part of it is for us, it's so eye opening and so humbling to see these ordinary everyday people who have done amazing things in their lives and that they were just personally motivated to be good people and to do good things, which I think is really important for kids to know. I think what's awesome too is most of these people were very ordinary for their time. Like to us, we feel like they were in extraordinary circumstances, but that was just their life. So for instance, Frank Emmy, he would just owned a grocery store and then he was interned during World War II. It's a whole big history, but to him, it was just, he was asked to report and he was trying to be a good American. So he reported with his family like everyone else and then decided with no political activism experience that he was going to fight for their constitutional rights, even while they were interned. Yeah. 
there's just some really amazing people that we just um, feel like should be a bit more in that public spotlight. And we wanted to though, you know, kid, children's books can be fun and they can be lighthearted and entertaining. Um, but we wanted to be able to still have that entertainment factor while having an educational factor and an emotional factor. So we kind of took our backgrounds with what we've studied and what we've been passionate about to kind of create, I guess, three main purposes. Um, so like Spencer mentioned, one of them is to show heroes that are from a more diverse background. So I always look at that as for people who belong to marginalized groups, they get to see heroes that look like them. And people who maybe aren't from those marginalized groups can see that heroes exist in people who don't look like them. And both of those are kind of two sides of the same coin that are really significant, um, especially in our current culture where we're becoming more globalized, right? Where we are more aware of people with different backgrounds than we've ever been before. Mm -hmm. So being able to see heroes in anyone that is around us and seeing the value of people who are different than us, I think is really important. Um, so that's kind of point number one, that representation and diversification of what a hero can and should look like. Um, the second point that Spencer also has alluded to is focusing on creating heroes out of real people and not just superheroes. I mean, like I like anyone else, totally, absolutely just go to the movies to watch any big superhero movie because they're fun and they're action packed and they're great. And I walk away and I usually don't remember very much except for the big plot points. There's nothing wrong with that. They've got value and they're important and they're entertaining. But what is more beautiful, I think, is to see heroes and everyday people. I think it helps to create a, a greater respect and reverence for life and for just other people around us, knowing that everyone is a hero in their own stories. And so being able to show children, especially, that like your mom's a hero. Like, look at this person who sat on a bus or this person who stood up for what was right you know, those are heroic things. And when we're able to introduce that to children, I think they will be able to see heroes in their everyday and not have to rely on superheroes or fictionalized people in order to, to fill that gap of finding their own heroes. Our third point, the biggest thing that I'm hoping will come out of the series is from my social science background. I'm hoping that when parents and children read it together, that they'll start dialogue conversations on the topics covered in the books. So as they go through this book about Claudette Colvin, we're hoping that young children, because they're just naturally curious, are going to start asking things like, why was Claudette not allowed to sit where she wanted to on the bus? Or why was Dummy Hoy, this deaf man, treated differently because he couldn't hear? And as those things open up, parents can have easy segues into conversations about tough topics. So they can be covered really early. They can have open dialogue from a young age. And we're hoping they'll cover every topic for the rest of their lives. Like once these children have this message from their parents, like we are willing to talk about hard things with you. We are willing to sit down and take the time to struggle through things together. That when things not related to history, not related to our heroes come up, they're more willing to talk about the hard stuff in general. So like certainly when they become teenagers, a lot of hard things are going to come up and even me growing up, I wish I'd had more of that feeling with my own parents that I could talk to them about anything. Not that they didn't do a great job, but we're trying to make one more channel for even the parents that are doing a great job to have that opening where children feel like there is a precedence of talking about the important stuff. So at any time I can bring up the important stuff and they will listen, they will put in the effort. Yeah. And one of my, as we were talking about kind of creating this mission, one of my personal experiences that really eye-opening to me 
so that one of my nephews, and this is um, one of my nephews and he's white, um, we were there at their house and we spent quite a bit of time with them, you know, see them every, every month or so. And I was asked to read a bedtime story. So I go in the room with my two nephews and we're reading this book and about halfway through my nephew stops me and he says, Aunt Cachet, why is your skin brown? Um, and that really like, sorry really tugged at my heartstrings for so many reasons, but it was, I'd known him, you know, we'd spent time together for years. Like, it's not like I was a new person. Um, but it was when we were engaging in an activity that built trust and closeness that he finally felt comfortable to ask this question that I'm sure he'd been wondering for a long time. Um, and what's been interesting is ever since then, I've noticed that when he does have more questions like that, because I answered him in that instance, that he feels more comfortable. So I, you know, I wear my hair all different ways. I've worn it straight, like, you know, chemically straightened. I've worn different weaves. I've worn it natural and short and long. And he's asked before, you know, he's been like, Aunt Cachet, why is your hair different every time we see you? You know, and it is these small questions that are so innocent, right? They're, they're from young children who want to understand the world around them. And I just remember that first time that he asked me that question, Aunt Cachet, why is your skin brown? He was asking, I've recognized that you're different than me and I want to know why and I finally feel comfortable asking that question. Um, that to me was, it was eye-opening. And I know, had I not taken the time, right, over those years before he asked that question to, you know, have conversations with him to create just that sense of closeness, it is very possible that that's a question he could have had for years. Um, to my knowledge, I'm sure he has met other black people, but I do know, I don't, I don't think he has any close relationships or interactions with any other black individuals. And so that experience for me was just so telling and how significant it is to have a relationship of closeness, to be able to have those tough conversations. The tough conversations don't happen in an open manner if that first step hasn't been accomplished. I guess we should mention that because that is so foundational to our mission, this idea of building that closeness, that communication. Uh, we've designed our websites and also the tie-ins from the books around making that easier. I understand it's not easy to talk to like, let me explain Jim Crow racism to my seven-year-old. That's a tall order. I don't expect anyone to just dive in there without some preparation. So every one of our books, we have a QR code at the beginning that takes, well, first off, we explain what the purpose of the book is so people go in prepared and then take them to our website through that QR code where we have all of the background information. There's a lot of articles we've got throughout the internet about, for instance, Claudette Colvin, the Jim Crow South, the history of racism in the United States so people can brush up or learn it for the first time maybe. And then also we've written articles using modern social science research about how to talk to children about racism, uncomfortable history, ableism, these important topics that the books tangentially bring up, you're prepared to talk about. Age-wise, our, our ideal um, is likely children ages 6 to 10, which is like a, a big difference, right? Like a 6-year-old and a 10-year-old learn at very different paces, and their level of understanding is very different. Um, so we usually when we say that, where people are like 6 to 10, not like 6 to 7. <laughs> um, but the reality is 6 isn't too young to talk about hard topics. and We've written the books in a way that they are simple enough that a parent reading them to a young child, like six years old, 
um, the child will be able to understand and will hopefully feel comfortable asking those simple questions. That experience I shared with my nephew actually happened when he was five or six, and um, that has definitely helped inspire kind of that age range that we've wanted to target because we recognize if they can ask questions like that at that young of an age, their brain is preparing to be able to handle these kinds of difficult topics. So six years old is definitely kind of the younger end of the spectrum, which is very much like parent and child. 10 years old, of course, totally different. Like, so the hope is that as children get older, right, that hopefully they've started reading them with their parents. Um, but then as they get older, they can still read the books with parents if they want or on their own. And it is still simple enough language that they can understand, um, but gives them enough, especially in our digital age, to be able to know how to look up these kinds of topics. So the hope is that right at those early ages and the early stages, it inspires that the parents and the children and starts to open up that line of thinking. And as they get older, they can continue to return to these books and allow it to inspire their own search for truth and knowledge. I guess it's important to mention that the parents really are essential here, not just because we want those conversations on important topics to happen, but just the narrative structure of real history does not follow the way that very young children in early developmental stages are able to make a causal relationship with. For instance, most children's books are going to be, there was a hard thing, they worked hard or they worked with their friends, something changing events and then good outcome. And history doesn't work like that. It's messy, it's up and down. So for instance, Claudette does not win in the way that you would expect her to if you were a child looking at this story because she didn't get people cheering her on on that bus. She was jeered, she was yelled at, and she was arrested. And then the judge passed sentence that she had committed a crime and everything seemed to be a lose for her. So in the book, we have to take you down like she did something heroic. For her, it was not immediately a payoff. And then at the end, it spawned this beautiful movement that moved toward more equity for everyone. So it's really important that parents can make that connection for their children because they literally developmentally, they can't see it for themselves. They're going to be like, well, she lost. This is a horrible story. So we have to be able to make bridge that gap to where they can see like cause and effect between doing something for the right reasons now, even if it's hard, even if it doesn't pay off in the way that you can see is still worth it. All of these books are going to be hardcover because we hope that families keep them and they use them and hardcover books for kids tend to work better. They are though just a soft paper page. And so our goal is the hard copy, there's just something beautiful about having a hard copy of a book. So our hope is that people really gravitate towards that option. But we also recognize that not everyone wants to go purchase or check out from the library a physical copy of the book. So we are also, we've created ebooks. So if you've got like a, a tablet or a nook or, you know, a reader, you're able to purchase the book that way. And then we're also, we've got in the works audiobooks. So it can be you know, you're the backdrop that you're listening to on your family road trip or driving to school one day. Really, we want to make sure that these stories are accessible to anyone who wants them in any way that they want to engage with them. So um, all of our books, whether you're doing it in the, the hard copy, the digital, or even the audio book, we will absolutely include the information to access all of the resources. So the links to our website and everything so that all of the offerings are equivalent in value and hopefully the decision that people make on which 
format they'd like to purchase them in is solely based on their preference. Um, so we are self-publishing. Typically though with self-publishing, it means you've got a lot more autonomy. The thing that the example I always give is if you go through a publisher, it's very possible that they will take over creative license, meaning they will find an illustrator for you. Um, it was really important to us that any illustrations that were in the book and the way that the information was presented was in line with our missions and that the images provided dignity to the characters. And so we felt that self-publishing was going to be the best route. Um, if you self-publish, that essentially means you handle all of the marketing, all of the promotion. It means that you are handling um, reaching out to all of your sources, reviewers, and when it comes time to distribute the books, you are personally responsible for distributing them. We feel this project is needed and we feel like it's really important. And it is very possible that all of the money we've put into these books is it comes down to us like holding on to a thousand copies of each of our books in our house for the rest of our life. <laughs> yeah. Like that is a very real possibility. So we've been saving for a while and are, are kind of bootstrapping it and recognizing that it is very possible that all of this money will be sunk, but it's, it's worth the risk to us. It's, it is risky. It's very risky for us, but, but when it comes down to it, we want it to happen and we weren't going to allow that to be in the hands of other people. So we just hope that people, that the series resonates with others enough that they pick up the books and they purchase them and they check them out. But if not, um, we put our heart and our soul and our wallets into it and, and come what may. We'll have all our stuff at the little known heroes.com. <laughs> <laughs> By all means, find it. We have a lot more heroes that we're excited about. In fact, the ones I'm, I'm most excited about are, are coming up. I'm most excited about a woman named Irina Sendler, who was a Polish woman who during the Holocaust uh, assisted Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto and also afterward when they were trying to reconnect Jewish children with their families. It's an incredible story and I love it as an example of being a helper. Irina Sendler absolutely could have just gone with the flow, been like, absolutely, we're gonna just listen to the Nazis, but she decided that she was going to help these people who were being massacred, these people who had the force of the most powerful regime they had ever known against them. She stood up to in a very transcendent way, in a way that said, I will preserve this people, this race that I have no connection to other than human dignity. The one that I'm most excited about personally is Maria Tallchief. Um, she was a um, Native American woman who was a ballet dancer and is actually lauded as the United States' first prima ballerina. I, like I mentioned, like at the very beginning, I love dancing and singing and acting and performing. And so, um, What's really cool is, is in her story, we go over a lot about some of the things that she had to overcome. In particular, she was um, a racial minority jumping into an industry that was largely for white people. Like Russian people, in fact. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, not just white yeah, people, but Double Russian. minority. She was American and she was Native American. Exactly. So she's probably one of my favorites just because she's got this really cool story and one of my favorite little tidbits, I won't give everything away though, you can absolutely, you know, learn about her on your own, um, is that she was actually asked to change her last name so that it could sound more Russian. And she said no. And that's like a little thing, but my first name is very hard for people to pronounce when they see it spelled. It, like the spelling does not make sense and it doesn't really help. So for me, a name is just so significant and so important. And so to see her as a performer um, at this intersection of, of being a minority in the industry that she was in, 
say no, my name, particularly her last name, there were some changes she actually made to her first name, but I, I, that's not to me what's quite as important. Um, but her last name, the name that was very identifying, that made it very clear um, for most people what her background or her nationality or her race was, she would not part with. She was Maria Talchief. That was her last name and she would not budge from that. So she's one of the people that I'm most excited about for round two. So I really hope that we're able to make something impactful that people hold on to for years to come that affect lives for the better.